Howdy. Hope this message finds you well. And thank you for tapping in to this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. An idea I'll continue to build as the series gains momentum is given the sheer pace of information and data being created, curated, and transmitted, it is within the absences of information where many of the most important events and issues are taking place. With everyone getting a tailored message from an algorithm, their chosen news authority, or a social media account, what we pay attention to seems to increasingly get smaller and smaller as it gets more fractured within. Just think for a quick moment. Most people at the time this episode is broadcast are spending most of their time on politics and coronavirus. Regardless of where you stand on the spectrum of those perspectives or the convergence of the two, we're all for the most part sucked into the two vortexes. If it's deep state conspiracies, defaming other stances, shouting to the wind of the absurdity of the other side, it all seems like the air is sucked out of the room for anything else. It seems like all the air is sucked out of the room for anything else. The reality, though, is that the world still spins merrily along, none the wiser of what gets our attention most. Such as to say, in all the attention given to the big waves of the moment, what is it that's slipping through the larger and larger cracks? My aim with this series is to try to shed some light on those slips, one of which happened this September. First starting a few months ago and then culminating in October, the Trump administration announced a normalization of relations between Israel, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Sudan. Such an event under a typical news cycle that, let's be honest, has gone the way of the dodo, would have been headline news with much time spent on those national Sunday morning news shows. But today, as we're going vertical on the attention exponent, I can't say I saw a single thorough and sustained analysis of it. A trend I worry will continue as time goes on, regardless of the administration whose chief responsibility it may be. Which is to say, I thought it all the more important to put a base coat on the Israel-Palestine conundrum and what these new talks mean for it and the future. My guest today is a foremost expert in the Middle East, who literally wrote the book on the Israel-Palestine conflict, Dr. James Gelvin, professor of Middle Eastern history at UCLA. This is chock full of fascinating ways to view the world, including how revolutions start. James's idea is that it starts first in the context on the ground, the set and setting, if you will, before then flowing through the consciousness of the individual, getting shaped by what is occurring with them at that given moment. Are they hungry? Do they have to move because of some type of social turbulence? Do they have options economically and socially? Is the culture shifting? Hell, what is the cultural novelty that is shaping the individual's consciousness? Ultimately, this all comes through an act of contingency. Not what the original course of events that was likely to occur, but what acts now will occur, and what will that lead to? Context, consciousness, and contingency. It's useful in any number of situations, from our own lives and those petty little frustrations that lead us to make different contingencies, through the latest wave in the news. And before I let you go on listening to someone far more knowledgeable than I, I want to highlight another particular section of the interview, where James points out an incredible and simple truth. All nationalism is true, all nationalism is false, and that nations themselves are thoughtful creations. Whether it's the state of modern-day Turkey, or the nationalism held at a World Cup match, it's all a figment of the consciousness of the person expressing it. Nationalism is false, because it only exists so long as we allow it to exist. 
none of the assertions it has are actually true. Which is also what then makes it true. Because by acting out those nationalist ideas, or even passively allowing them to exist, makes them exist. When nationalist ideas are brought through into reality, it's because of a shared value in that reality, not from an otherworldly grace that bestows it. It's a shared value that's created and carefully crafted into being. Nationalism, as many banal things we take for granted, are human inventions. These qualities, events, and conundrums that emerge from it are further human characteristics. And as Professor Gelvin points out, the modern state of Israel is within a geolocation that is not the traditional kingdom of David. Just the same as the geolocation that the people of Palestine are cornered into is not their traditional ancestral land. They're actually opposite one another. Israelis live where the ancient Palestinians live, and Palestinians live in ancient Judea. Yet, the hold each has upon where their feet reside is as real as their ability to walk on it. Just as the cultural ties they each feel are as real as the threat of violence they both have to consider as a result from them. I really cherish the ability to talk with such experts as Professor Gelvin. Frequently, I walk out of such interactions, finding such delightful change of thought happening, almost as if I'm discovering a new room in my house I didn't know was there. In this episode, we talk through the founding of the state of Israel, the rich and ancient culture of the region known as Palestine, before detouring a bit into the state of the Middle East as a whole, if the Arab Spring has run dry, how the Middle East is the most food-insecure region in the world, how neoliberal policies create a lot of civil and economic unrest, before coming back around and giving a speed course on Israel's regional policies, wars, what are the Oslo Accords, why are they dead, and why should we care? I've listened to this episode a few times, and I keep coming back with a new line of thought. So without further ado, my interview with the author of books The Israel and Palestine Conflict, as well as Middle East, What Everyone Needs to Know, along with several other articles I encourage you to check out, Professor James Galvin. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk with me. Um, thank you. Real quick, just can you introduce yourself so we have it and then we can get started. Uh, my name is Jim Galvin. I'm a professor of history, modern Middle Eastern history at University of California, Los Angeles. Awesome. And uh, hopefully the weather is a, a little not as gloomy as it is just south here in San Diego. <laughs> no, but we still get the uh, smoke from the wildfires. Yeah, the, that basin really traps it, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank you again for taking the time. So um, like I mentioned, there's a question I ask all of my guests, and it's just kind of to bring the humanity out of all of us. And that's, uh, what do you like to do that makes you happy? I like traveling, and I sort of miss it now that we're in a pandemic. But last year, I had this great year. I was on, um, I was off last year. I was on sabbatical. And so I got, I was able to pick up all these invitations um, that have been outstanding. So I went to Seoul, South Korea. I went to Mexico City. I went to Bucharest and Budapest. I went to Prague. Um, it was just traveling all the time. It's just absolutely wonderful. I, I love traveling too. I, I'm obsessed with culture, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love, 
I love the sense of wonder and appreciation you get for other cultures and your own. Um, Seoul and Budapest are some of my favorite cities in the world. I love Budapest. Budapest is incredible. Budapest is just wonderful. Bucharest, I was invited by the uh, Central Bank to give a lecture on the New Middle East. And so they just waltzed us right through uh, customs and passport control and stuff like that. Put us in five-star hotel. It was just absolutely wonderful overlooking the other side of the river. It was, it was just like, it was, a, it was a dream. That sounds beautiful. That sounds really great. I, I love the architecture in, uh, in, in, well, in Budapest in particular and kind of the, I really like what they did with the, what they call it, like those ruin buildings from the Soviet uh, Republic that kind of just got dilapidated and now they've turned into breweries or clubs or things like that. Right. Like, it's, it's amazing to me, like how they took something so stark and cold and turned it into something so vibrant. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's this old saying in uh, Warsaw, which is uh, the best view in, in Warsaw is from the Ministry of Information building because that's the only place that you could stand and you won't see the Ministry of Information building. <laughs> that's really great. Uh, I, lo I love that humor. That's really good. Um, well, yes. Yeah, so thank you again. So uh, there's a lot that I, I would love to cover with you, um, but I kind of wanted to frame it just mostly on, on Israel and Palestine. And then if we have time, we, there, I have some more and more macro questions about the Middle East, particularly Saudi Arabia, um, just because I think that that's um, an, an issue area that uh, has really fallen out the zeitgeist, which personally I take a, a lot of concern with, just considering, uh, you know, Mohammed bin Salam's rise and kind of a lot of the things that go along with that. But um, I think Israel and Palestine in particular is something that um, most people I talk with seem to be uh, not as up to date on it, the history as well as kind of the contemporary times. So um, I wanted to start with that and um, in particular, I kind of want to set the stage a little bit, and this could be very brief or as long as you want it, to be honest. Um, but so I wanted to use the date of May 14th, 1948, which is, I believe, the official date of the start, the founding of the state of Israel. Um, and I have two questions, and they're going to be conjoined. I'm going to ask one first, then I'm going to bring my love of culture up in the second one. Um, and the first one is, can you, can you describe to me what life was like pre-May 14th, 1948? in the area that we now call Israel? Okay. Um, there, there are several ways you have, you have to look at it. I mean, first of all, um, Israel-Palestine had been um, under, the, under Ottoman rule, uh, the territory, which is Israel-Palestine, from 1517 to 1918. And when the Ottomans were finished off in World War I uh, by the victorious Entente powers, uh, they divided up the Arab lands into what they called mandates. Uh, and uh, the British got the mandate, think of a temporary colony. The British got the mandate for what they call Palestine. Palestine is, an, is a term that goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks. And this is how we can see, by the way, where we get these names from of all these various countries um, you know, in, in the region. Um, you know, uh, Lebanon comes from the Bible, Palestine, you know, same thing. Uh, it's either the classics or the Bible uh, from which we get, we get these names. Anyway, um, uh, the British got the colony, the mandate for Palestine, uh, and so therefore uh, were in charge uh, from uh, 1920 all the way through 1948. Now, uh, before that, actually, uh, uh, Jews from Europe began emigrating to the area that we call now Palestine and Israel. Um, that was uh, a uh, 
part of what was called the Zionist movement, uh, the Jewish nationalist movement, to move Jews out of Europe and into uh, their ancestral home, as it were. Um, so by the time that the British, by the time of 1948 or so, uh, Jews made up approximately one third of the population of the territory that is now Israel-Palestine. Uh, the other two thirds were made up of the indigenous population. Now the indigenous population had been under the Ottoman rule. Um, they were not unified by any single, singular nationalism. Uh, because, of course, the Ottomans were ruling them, and if they had a nationalism, it was what's called Osmanlilik, which is Ottoman nationalism. So after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, they went down a very, very windy road, uh, starting off with uh, Syrian nationalism and ending up with um, a uh, Palestinian identity, as it became clear that Palestine was not going to go the same way as Syria, Lebanon, and other states in the region. So anyway, that's what you had. You had conflict between the two groups, started out as primitive rebellion on the part of Palestinians, that's a technical term, um, and continued uh, all the way through uh, 1948. When the British withdrew in 1948, after uh, the United Nations uh, voted to establish a state of Israel, uh, when the British withdrew, um, the civil war broke out uh, between the two communities. Uh, and then uh, after the Palestinians were defeated, uh, the an invasion took place from uh, from the outside. Other Arab armies began moving into or attempting to get rid of the new Israeli state. Um, there's a whole story about about why they lost and why Israel was able to win. I'm not going to bore you with all the details right now, but as a result of this, of course, you know you get the, the establishment of the state of Israel, but you also get something that's called the Nakba, the catastrophe of uh, Palestinians, the expulsion of about or the flight of about 720,000 Palestinians from their homes to uh, other places. I had to be very careful about the word I use. There's also the controversy as to why they left. Uh, some were deliberately uh, removed. Others were terrorized into leaving. And others did the rational thing, which is, it's a war zone, let's get out. So anyway, that's exactly how this whole conflict began. Now, one very important thing about this is that the conflict is between uh, uh, Zionists on the one hand, and later Israelis, and Palestinians. And that's how it began. But in 1948, the date, the May date that you, you suggest, uh, the conflict shifted um, to the world. It was no longer between um, the uh, Zionist Israel and Israelis and the Palestinians. It was now between Israel and its neighbors. And the world spoke to trying to find a solution to uh, the state of war between Israel and Egypt, uh, Israel and Syria, Egypt and Iraq, and so on and so forth. That's what the world spoke to. They ignored the Palestinian question. The Palestinian question didn't come back in until 1993 with the signing of Oslo. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, I hadn't, there's a lot of color in there that I wasn't aware of. Um, I would love for you to bore me on the details of that. Uh, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask my next question because I have, I have actually two more questions that are framing and then we'll, we can be a little less structured. But uh, so I read in your book, uh, The Israel-Palestine Conflict, um, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing you a bit, um, but how a British short story writer described the island of Crete as a place that produced more history than can be consumed locally. I thought that was a really, really interesting phrasing, and I'm going to steal that. 
Uh, but anyways, uh, you then go on to say the same could be true of Palestine. Can you, can you explain what you mean by that a little bit? Sure, sure. I mean, first of all, let's give the guy credit. It's H.H. H. Monroe Saki. And, you know, he's just a delightful story writer. And, you know, anybody who's listening should pick up one of his books and, and just go through it. They're, they're funny as hell. But, you know, the idea being, of course, is that, you know, for example, the three monotheistic faiths have a very, very strong attachment to Palestine, particularly to Jerusalem. Um, you know, for example, for the Jews, of course, this was the site of David and Solomon's kingdom. We don't know how much of a kingdom it really was. Archaeologists still argue among themselves. Um, but, you know, this is something that the uh, present-day Israelis uh, cite as the reason why they have a right to this territory. In my view, by saying that you had an ancestral home someplace, there were other people there, um, by making that demand that you have a right to this land, I think it's a pretty thin reed to hang your, your homeland on. But so, you know, the Jews in that way, Muslims, for example, this was the site, Jerusalem was the site from which uh, Muhammad took his uh, night journey, for example. Um, and of course, for Christians, it's the site of the passion. So all these people have, uh, you know, a, a, a stake in Palestine. It's got a, a tremendous amount of history going back into, into ancient days. Uh, and these, uh, archaeology is a national obsession among Israelis because, of course, this is a way that they can validate their right to be there, um, you know, finding more and more evidence of Jewish habitation, which I don't think anybody doubts. Um, and then it goes through a whole series of periods, you know, the Roman period, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, fundamentally, there's a lot of confluence of histories taking place in this one very, very tiny territory. And I can't stress enough how tiny it is, actually. I mean, Israel is the size of uh, uh, New Jersey. And Israel makes up about 78% of the um, area between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Yeah, that's a th thank you. I was actually going to ask you if you could add, uh, add the color of how small it is because it, it's it's thin too, right? Like I think most people would think of New Jersey as being quite like it, it is a good, decent size, but the the geo the ge geography of Israel being so thin and kind of nestled between those two water points, I think, is a very good distinction. Right, um, but actually, very interestingly, uh, the site of present day uh, Israel is the site that used to be inhabited by the Philistines and Canaanites. Uh, which archaeologists are saying are really one, you know, they were, they were blended people. Um, and the site that is now the West Bank was where Jerusalem was and the, whatever, whatever it was, the kingdom of David and Solomon was. So it's a very interesting thing that maybe to solve the question, all they got to do is swap territories. I'm sure they would love that. That's, that's, so you're saying like ancient Judea is actually closer to the, the geolocation of what is now the West Bank. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's also interesting, by the way, that Jerusalem was not built by David and Solomon. It was built by a group called the Jebusites. It was conquered by David. You know, so basically a way to resolve the whole damn Jerusalem problem is to give it back to any Jebusites who might be still around. There we go. We can, we can find a few of them, I'm sure. <laughs> um. Okay, so closing this triplet here, because I, I think, thank you for this. This is all great color. Um, I want to I try to give a little bit of a, to, a base layer to some uh, of the audience while we're kind of going through some of these. So my, my last one is, is once again, from your, your book, The Israel-Palestine Conflict, which, uh, by the way, as you bring up Saki, I have to give you some, some uh, praise as well. I really enjoyed reading your writing. I thank thought you. your, your conversational tone and the way that you kind of 
dryly put things and then follow it up with some facts and all of it. Like it's very, very entertaining to read and particularly some of your articles I was enjoying quite a bit. Um, anyway, so you say how uh, Zionism and Palestine, uh, Palestinian nationalism were cast in the same mold, but neither were foregone conclusions. Um, so I, I want to ask, how were they kind of cast in a similar mo mold and what could have pushed them one way or the other to result in perhaps a different conclusion? Well, all nationalisms are cast in the same mold. It's not just them. It's basically French nationalism, Italian nationalism, Chinese nationalism, and so on and so forth. I mean, fundamentally, what you're saying is that there are certain assumptions that you have with nationalism, that, for example, you form a distinct people, that uh, the world is made up of distinct peoples, that these distinct people can be identified by a certain number of characteristics, like maybe language or maybe religion or something along those lines that um, the, uh, this distinct people has a special relationship with a piece of territory um, that maybe it was born in, or maybe it had its renaissance in, or something along those lines. Uh, and then finally, that this uh, nation travels through time, that uh, the same nation that was there in ancient times, let's say, is there in the present time. So for example, uh, the Jews of the, uh, Zionists believe that the Jews of the biblical period are the same people as the Jews of the present time. Now, if we were to meet any, anybody out of the Bible, we would have very little to talk about, basically, because we just think in so totally different ways. And yet, we think of them, uh, you know, people think of themselves as parts of nations that travel through time. Now, I like to tell my students that all nationalisms are true, all nationalisms are false. Nationalisms are true in as much as they create nations where nations had not existed. So they're true. But all nationalisms are false because they create nations where nations had not been and had not existed. Now, I tell this story every year to my students, and the thing that mystifies me is how the hell they write this down. Uh, but, you know, um, who knows? Anyway, uh, the thing about um, uh, both uh, Palestinian nationalism and, Jew and Zionism, Jewish nationalism, is that these, uh, both of these nationalisms were born in a world in which people thought in nationalist ways. But there was no reason to believe that Jews would become a Jewish nation or that um, uh, Palestinians would become a Palestinian nation. I mean, for example, the bulk of the world's Jews when Zionism was founded were, were in Russia. And the only reason why uh, Jews didn't become Russian nationalists was for, they weren't allowed to. Uh, that the Russian nation, one of its identifying characteristics was uh, orthodoxy. And the Jews were not orthodox, obviously. So basically there was that, and there was also Russian anti-Semitism. So they were othered by the Russians. And so they began to see themselves as a nation, um, not necessarily as a, as a religious group, because this nation included believers and non-believers, but it was, an outcast nation within the Russian Empire. Um, by the way, uh, in the beginning, a majority of Jews around the world were not Zionists. Uh, there were also other currents as well that attracted Jews. Nationalism was, for example, uh, various nationalisms were also very popular. Other nationalisms, particularly in Western Europe, where Jews were allowed to become equal citizens. So Zionism was not inevitable. Neither was Palestinian nationalism. As we said, you know, uh, uh, it, it is absolutely feasible for somebody who was, uh, let's say, born in the Ottoman Empire to have identified as an Ottoman, then as a Arab or Syrian 
and then finally as a Palestinian as these identifications became solidified. It's also very possible, by the way, that people don't identify as you know, any of these. As a matter of fact, you know, until there was a strong Palestinian na nationalism, which began to develop really in the 1930s, um, there was a whole diverse way in which people thought of themselves. That's really fascinating. Um, I'm a big fan and I'm a personal huge influence in my life was Edmund Maloff's book, In the Name of Identity. And that really, what you just said right there was making me think back to some of the, the stories or he uses as analogies there where, where one group of person, you follow them through a 30 year history and their first identity that they tell you will change throughout time. And it's, it's usually in, in relation to what the conflict, conflicting identity is. Um, so I, I appreciate that distinction because, I mean, I think identities are such a trap now more than ever, but I won't go into that. Um, and it's almost always fluid, but it's something that is so fluid that even in our own consciousness, we may not even notice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is the whole discussion over the course of the election, of course, about this thing called Latino, uh, excuse me, Latinx identity and whether it actually really exists. What does, for example, somebody who uh, you know, is a recent immigrant from Mexico, um, who is, let's say, working class, have in common with, let's say, an upper class or formerly upper class Venezuelan in Florida? Uh, you know, so, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things that uh, what we have to really do is begin to think again about the categories, that, you know, and particularly the artificial categories. Asian American, for example, you know, um, um, uh, you know, a Latin American. I can't believe I just said all the artificial categories because, of course, they're all are artificial categories. Yeah, the the Latinx Latino one is one that I, I think about a lot. Um, I think it's almost ten years ago. I went really deep in uh, Cuban American literature, um, and I found it really fascinating. Um, what the kind of diaspora coming from Cuba when uh, Castro came in there, and how different that identity group was and it really shifted my perspective into thinking this concept of latinx is almost really just a way of identifying the the old spanish empire and the, and not necessarily really even a distinction of an identity or nation or whatsoever and then once again i really only can think of the only distinction we can make like that is perhaps japanese right where it's a nation and a state well yeah but then again you know basically there are you know, for example, on various islands, there are different sort of like ethnicity or what, what used to be called ethnicity. I don't know what people are calling them now. But when you were just talking, I was, I was thinking about my Iranian students. I mean, they're now third generation or so, fourth generation sometimes. Uh, many of them came from, uh, many of their ancestors came in 1979. Uh, the people, their, uh, my students' grandparents or parents, you know, despise the, the current regime. But these students are sort of interested, you know, just sort of interested in the regime. They don't know it. They don't know to hate it in the way that their parents did. And that forms so much of their parents' identity. And their identity is, is, is very, very different. Then you have the economic refugees who basically just want to be left alone, want to be left alone. They don't care about, you know, the internal squabbling within the community and that sort of stuff. What they really care about is, you know, making ends meet. Yeah, my, my primary care doctor is... Uh is Iranian as well. This, this is a conversation we tend to have a lot on it. And it's, it's so fascinating to me. Just, I mean, once again, it goes back to identities and it's, you know, your identity is not just the, I don't even want to use the word ethnicity. It's not just the culture that you were necessarily most allegiant to, but 
it's very fluid over time. Yeah. Um, okay, so there's another point that you make, and it's it's kind of tying up some of these ethnicity state things that we've been talking about. Um, as an aside, I'm a huge uh, classicist. I study a lot of uh, classic uh, history. Um, and I like this point that you made because it's, so also another one of Admin Malov's books that's a huge cornerstone is the Crusades Through Arab Eyes. Um, and he, you, you kind of squared up a framework that he introduces in there of kind of what the Arab world was like during, right before the Crusades and kind of the shift that happened there. Um, and what you say is before the 19th century, the predominant form of political organization in the world was smaller than the modern state or much larger than empires. And what I want to ask is how much of that legacy in particular should be held in mind when considering the Middle East, both in its history and kind of contemporary ripples therein? Oh, a, a lot. Um, people tend to look at, for example, World War I as being this real break in Middle Eastern history. Before you had the Ottoman Empire, Afterwards, you had a whole bunch of states that were created um, out of the, the remains of the Ottoman Empire and other places as well, other empires as well. I don't look at World War I as being all that important because basically the borders and so on and so forth, that's all interesting, and, but that takes place within what we call historical time. What I really am interested in is what takes place in epical times, the big shifts that take place. Uh, you know, in, uh, in world history or in a regional history. During the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire ceased being an early modern empire and became a modern empire. The Ottoman Empire went through a process that's called the Tanzimat, which is called, it basically means regulations, but it was a restructuring that they did. And what they wanted to do was to reorder their empire on the basis of what they saw in uh, mainly the West. Uh, because the West was, was able to harness the energy of its populations. I mean, I, like, I like to tell my students that the Ottomans, the Ottomans looked in one direction and they saw the French, and they looked in another direction, they saw the Chinese, and they decided it's much better to become the French than it is the Chinese, because the Chinese were being picked apart by uh, nationalities uh, like the French and British and so on, and Germans and what have you. So uh, that's what they decided to do. So they began restructuring. And um, that restructuring actually you know, was political and economic and you know, even social. Uh, whole new social classes, for example, were created. Um, uh, subjects of the Sultan became citizens of an empire. In other words, there was horizontal bonds among these people. Um, there was a Ottoman nation-ness that was being formulated at the same time, you know. So, and also there were, the Ottoman Empire was being integrated more and more into the world economy. People were now producing for the market as opposed to producing for consumption. So this was a period of extraordinarily change, uh, extraordinary change when the modern entered into the region. And, you know, the Ottoman Empire of, at the end of the 19th, 19th century, the only thing it had in common with the Ottoman Empire of the 16th century was that it was still ruled by a member of the House of Osman, and it was still called an empire. But it wasn't really an empire anymore. It was a modern state. Hmm. And, that, and the restructuring that you're talking about, is that like the Auto-Turks and the kind of bringing in of a new cultural identity as well with like increased literacy and changing of the uh, language and all of that as well. Am I getting my well, history right? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, Ataturk came later. Uh, he came after World War One uh, and fundamentally founded the Republic of, of, of Turkey. But the only reason he could do that, the only reason why uh, a Turkish nation could be created, was because he was building on with the building blocks of the Ottoman that the Ottomans had created. In other words, people could conceive of themselves as citizens of a republic as a result of the fact that the Ottomans went through this period called the Tanzimat. Interesting. So how much of that reshaping of the empire has this, the ripples still kind of going through till today? Does it? Oh, the very fact that you know, people can conceive of themselves as being part of nations, for example. Mm. Um, uh, we owe it to the Ottomans. They created what I like to call a culture of nationalism. In other words, people got to see themselves as, as cogs in a national machine. They got to be part of that national machine. In other words, they would be conscripted into the military. They would be um, uh, using the same laws and same rules of contracts. They would be uh, speaking, uh, uh, or at least the official language would be the same throughout the empire, so on and so forth. So people would be uh, engaging in practical activities with a whole bunch of other people. And this would create what, what uh, political scientist Timothy Mitchell calls a structural effect. In other words, if you're part of, a, if you're a cog in a machine, then what you're going to do is see that machine as being an actual thing, as being a nation, and yourself as being part of that nation. And this is what was created during, you know, in the Ottoman period. Now, afterwards, for example, um, the uh, Turks could, uh, or Ataturk could take advantage of that. Uh, and say to people, you know, you're not an Ottoman anymore. What you are is Turk, you know, and, you know, uh, this is what we're going to do. This is the sort of laws we're going to have. This is the sort of relationship that we expect to see among our citizenry and so on and so forth. And the responsibilities of the government towards the citizens and the citizens towards the government. So all these things were made possible because of what the Ottomans had done. That's, that's, I really like how you kind of brought that together. Um, it, it goes back to the nationalism is, is a thing and isn't a thing at the same time that you said earlier, right? Where they, they created um, the, I really like the, the idea of imagination in sapiens. And I think it's something as a species we, we kind of take for granted. And that's the fact that we can imagine this nation as a thing. And then through the fact that we've imagined it, we can actually create it into an entity. And, you know, the system kind of starts emerging out of there. Like you, you just put, it's really interesting. This is not something that, you know, has been around for a long, this idea has not been around for a long time. The idea itself became, began to reach dominance starting maybe in the 1980s or so. Um, uh, it is the idea that nations are not things that have to be awakened, but nations are things that are created. Uh, and it used to be that, you know, you would, you would talk about, uh, you know, tr you could trace a, a nation all the way back in time and this, that, and the other stuff. But this is called constructivism. You know, in other words, nations are not primordial. They're not entities that existed all the way from, from ancient times or in the case of the United States, from whatever date you want to give it now. Um, you know, it's, uh, these are nations that are constructed and they're constantly being reconstructed as well, reimagined as well. And they're not just being reimagined as a single entity. They're being reimagined by a whole variety of people who are imagining them in different ways.
mean, for example, a Native American male, uh, 65 years old, is not going to imagine his community, his, his national community in the same way as a, a teenage girl, for example. Yeah, no, and I, I think that that is such a foundational point that nations are created and it's something, okay, so I'm going to shamelessly plug, uh, I had this old professor and I brought it up in the last episode before this. Um, he has this book called The American Aeneas. Um, and what he claims in this, and he has quite a bit of, of backing to it, um, is, is how the myth of America was created, how the, this national character identity was created by the, the founding members of, of America. And it was you know, called back to Rome, right? In ancient Rome and the ancient Roman Republic. And that was all intentional and everything from our architecture was of course part of the neoclassicist movement that was popular then but also the fiber was in there you can read it through jefferson's letters to adams all the way through just discourse then um and that's something i think that we we it's hard for us to notice because it's so ingrained in our daily lives especially now during an election and all these type of things that we don't realize that you know what what this all is is once again it's it's just like you said it's our imagination well, in my transformation of what you said which is our imagine created this concept imagination created this concept and then through creating it and us collectively believing in it and then acting upon that we now have a nation as opposed to well and then it starts entering this weird feedback loop where it can kind of change and alter and shift course from there um, but once you have something kind of set um, you can go with it and you can see in, in, in a lot of mass movements throughout history, if you take that lens of how nations were either the concepts were created and, and used to spark a movement or altered and emerged from there, like you can see every like Mussolini in, in Italy is a good example of that, especially from all the kingdoms and, and various different states he kind of collected into one and well, he didn't, but how right. Italy was going through that time. Uh, that's a really fascinating point. Okay, so here we're going to get, jump a little bit forward into more contemporary. We're going to go back to around the 60s now. Um, and so, so you made the mention of how there was conflict shortly after the founding of, of the state of Israel. Um, and I want to move a little bit past that to the Six-Day War. Um, and if you wouldn't mind just briefly explaining what the Six-Day War is, and then my question on it is, is that war still relevant in the modern geopolitical landscape of the Middle East? And if so, um, how much of that has to do with a relationship of Israel to the United States? Well, uh, the war was, after the foundation of the State of Israel, uh, it was boycotted by the Arab states, uh, and uh, there was no peace treaties that were signed, although there were attempts to do so. Um, and there was constant tension back and forth. Uh, there was tension over, for example, who was going to get the Jordan River, uh, which states would take what amount of water from the Jordan River. There was also tension about, you know, there would be raids. Palestinians would raid back into Israel to take, the, take their abandoned property or sometimes commit acts of sabotage or even murder. Uh, the Israelis would not go after the, these people uh, per se. What they would do, though, however, is to go after the states from which these people came. The idea being that if uh, a uh, Fidei uh, launched a raid from Jordan, uh, then what they would do is, is hit Jordan back, and then the Jordanians would police their borders much better. Um, this did not endear Israel to the neighborhood. 
Um, and there were several really bloody raids that Israel conducted. Ariel Sharon was the person who was the Unit 101, the famous unit. Um, there were several bloody raids, uh, you know, in Gaza and in Jordan, uh, and so on and so forth. So there was tensions there. Um, the tensions began to escalate in 1967 um, as a result of this. You can see 1967 was really a first water war uh, because the question was who was going to control the uh, waters of both the Jordan River uh, and the uh, plateau area, uh, you know, that was, um, uh, you know, uh, in the Golan area. Um, so uh, the... Uh, Syrians began, uh, began to uh, uh, fire on Israelis who were attempting to divert the Jordan River. Uh, Tit-for-tat things would take place, and then there would be, you know, dogfights and so on and so forth in the skies over the area. Um, and then the, the Russians, the Soviets got involved. And the Soviets said that, uh, it sent a telegram to Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president of Egypt, saying that the Israelis were massing uh, troops on the Syrian border. Now, the interesting thing about this was that the Israelis were not massing troops on the Syrian border, that the Russians made it up out of whole cloth. But the more interesting thing about it is that Nasser knew that the Russians were lying to him. So he had this idea that the reason why the Russians were, um, you know, had done what they, what they did was that they, they, would hold his, they would hold his coat if he went to war with Israel. In other words, the Russians did the exact same thing that the Germans did with the Austrians in World War I. They gave, you know, according to the Egyptians, they gave the Egyptians a blank check to go to war. So the um, various Arab states entered into an alliance. Um, they felt they could weather the first blow from Israel and then strike back. Uh, they didn't weather the first blow from Israel. Uh, virtually uh, a vast majority of the air forces were, were almost completely obliterated or 70 or 80% obliterated on the ground. And, you know, in a place in the wide open spaces like the Sinai, for example, uh, who controls the air controls the ground. So the Israelis had complete air dominance and the war was over in, in, in six days. So, um, you know, that's why they call it the six day war. Um, so, the war is really relevant. I mean, there are, there are other details of this that I you know, left out, of course, about the closing of, of Straits of Tehran and stuff like that as well, that escalated the tensions. But uh, you can read my book in order to get those details. Um, the 67 war, let me, let me start off in a different way. There is this um, theory um, that uh, it's called linkage that the, uh, there cannot be peace in the Middle East, anywhere in the Middle East, until the Israel-Palestine conflict is resolved. And the reason for that is because the Israel-Palestine conflict roils the waters throughout the Middle East, okay? And it's called linkage, and it's complete bullshit, you know? Uh, it's, there is no linkage, you know, they, we see that now with, uh, for example, Bahrain and UAE making deals with Israel, uh, normalizing relationships well with Israel. Um, but there is no such thing as linkage. Um, what that means, of course, is that the Israel-Palestine Arab, two conflicts, Israel-Palestine on the one hand, Arab-Israeli conflict on the other hand, are not all that important. And, you know, we talked about the size of the state of Israel, which is 78% of that territory. Um, you could talk about the populations involved. You could talk about the number of casualties. I mean, there's been about 125,000 people who were killed in wars, various wars. Now, of course, every life lost in a war is tragic. 
But think about how many um, millions of people have died. I mean, they're talking about upwards of a million people died in the Iran-Iraq war, for example. Uh, and how many people died in the uh, Rwandan genocide or in um, Kosovo and so on and so forth? Far more than 125,000. So they're very, very, it's a very, very small, tiny little piece of the Middle East. Now, the reason why we care about it so much was has to do with, again, American support, as you were saying, and also the fact is that Israel was important for, you know, during the Cold War, very important to the United States uh, during the Cold War, when, you know, they were basically our policemen in that part of the area. You know, um, that, of course, has, has pretty much changed now that the Cold War is, is, is over. But the 1967 war is important for the Israel-Palestine conflict in the same way the 1948 war is, because every issue that's unresolved now came out of either 1948 or 1967. Borders for a future Palestinian state, for example. Jerusalem, they both came out of um, the 1967 war. The right of return came out of the 1948 war. So these wars still have leave their imprint on, on the area. Thank you for making that uh, distinction. I had something that you said is um, sticking with me. Um, so there's a few things that I, I study quite closely, and one of them is water, because um, I think that that's going to be the resource that we're going to be fighting over the most. I mean, we saw it in, in Syria uh, more recently in contemporary times. Um, but you, you said that in a lot of ways, the 1967 Six-Day War was the first water war. What, what do you mean by that? Well, um, we're, we're seeing similar sort of things taking place now, for example, in uh, between Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia, um, the headwaters of the Nile, and how much water uh, Egypt is going to get. I mean, you're absolutely right. Particularly now, water is a major issue. It's always been. I mean, it's, it's not a particularly uh, wet re region. There's uh, increasing desertification, uh, you know, area becoming desert, you know, throughout the region. Um, and so scarce water supplies are getting scarcer. Uh, and this is particularly happening because of, in part, because of global warming. I mean, you mentioned what was going on in Syria, for example. Uh, Syria, for five years before the uprising, had the worst drought. Meteorologists are, are, are having an argument about this, whether it's the worst drought in 500 years or the worst drought in 900 years. Okay. Now, this caused an influx of population to the cities. It also caused, caused greater demand on the government, which was not responding to those demands, et cetera. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say that the drought caused the Syrian uprising, but um, it is one of the elements that people translated into grievances uh, and gr grievances which they translated into action against their government eventually. So uh, as we approach this period of global warming, what was, what we were, or, or dramatic climate change, um, you know, what we're going to see is particularly in the Middle East, uh, conflicts over water. You know, and it's already taking place, uh, and it's both internal to countries like in Syria or external to countries like 1967, for example, which was in part a water war, and um, what's going on now on the Nile River. Um, and it, the situation is, is bound to, to get worse. There's another aspect of it as well. The Middle East is the uh, largest food importing, re importing region in the world. Wow. Okay. Uh, Oh, oh, it's, it's, it's totally dependent upon food imports from, from the outside. Um, and uh, it used to be, for example, that um, uh, Egypt got a bulk of its wheat from Russia, 
Uh, but then Russia had a series of wildfires in 2010 uh, and stopped exporting wheat uh, to Egypt again, and prices shot up, okay? Water is absolutely necessary for agriculture. There used to be two states in the region that were actually food exporters, uh, grain exporters. One of them was Syria and the other was Saudi Arabia. Hold on, my alarm clock in the background. Okay, that's over. Uh, thank God it's not 12 noon. Um, <laughs> only two o'clock. Um, anyway, um, Saudi Arabia and Syria used to be food exporters. And then Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia, you know, which of course had to do a lot of things like desalination and, and irrigation and things like that, decided that it was more important for them to spend the money not on, not on agriculture, but on weapons. And of course, Syria ended up with this, you know, horrific drought, uh, five-year drought, um, that sort of thing. So there are no food exporters anywhere in, in the region anymore. And as I said, the region is heavily dependent on food imports from various areas that may or may not be able to, import, to export food to the region. Wow, I didn't know that about the region, nor about the 2010 wildfires causing a shift in the, the Russian exports to the region. That's that's quite fascinating. Um, the the general uh, how how do I want to put this? I I looked at the the Syrian conflict quite a bit. I um, I was studying abroad uh, in Taipei actually when the Arab Spring happened, and it was uh, I was at a graduate university there, and it was so it was most of what we were talking about. Um, so I, I took quite an interest in that, um, and then the Syrian uh, civil war that's been happening. I thought that was, uh, especially with water, that it was quite alarming, uh, mostly just because of things that, that perhaps uh, more things to come, I guess. And, and I don't think that, like, to your point, like was the drought, I, I mean, I'm not going to make any assertions. I'm not nearly an expert as you are on the region, but it definitely created pressures. And historically, I think the more pressures individuals have, the more likely they are to make irrational decisions. And, and we can kind of well, say that first of all, we can't say that the rebellion was an irrational decision. Uh, it, was oh, very, it was a very rational decision uh, you know, on the part of the population. I mean, they were oppressed politically and suffering economically. Um, but the thing is, you, you, you're, you're, you're right to sort of distance these things because basically populations don't just rebel when they're put under these tremendous pressures. Some, sometimes they get cowed and sometimes they just basically get, get apathetic. Uh, so we really can't have a one-to-one -one correspondence. I use the word translate, you know, they have to translate their pain. I, mean, I always like to think of, of rebellions as uh, the three C's. There's context, consciousness, and uh, what's the third one? Good grief. Contingency. That's what happens when you get old. Con context, uh, consciousness, contingency. Okay, what do I mean? Context are the big ticket items that historians like to look at. You know, for example, the stuff that we're talking about, um, unemployment, for example, um, or neoliberal economic policies. Now, not one Arab went out on the streets demanding, you know, uh, shouting about neoliberal economic policies. They shouted about jobs. You know, they shouted about uh, corruption. That to them was their translating of the neoliberal economic policies into their consciousness, you know? And then they have to take another, another step, which is all of a sudden what you need is something to spark the conflagration, okay? In the case of the Arabs, uh, Arab uprisings, uh, it was the um, uh, death of a, or the, the self-immolation of uh, a peddler in Tunisia.
But there's a very interesting story about that, which shows you how these things are not directly, you know, uh, we're not organ stops, as Dostoevsky said. We're, we don't do things automatically. We're not Pavlov's dogs. Think about Tunisia. A peddler gets harassed by a cop, goes to the city government to complain, is pretty much ignored, thrown out, goes to the marketplace and um, you know, buys a flammable liquid, pours it over himself, lights himself on fire, and the next day, nothing happens. And that's exactly what happened in a town called Manaster in Tunisia, nine months before uh, the, the um, uh, self-immolation that caused the Arab uprising. So why did one cause an uprising and the other didn't? Uh, you can't explain that. As historians, we can't explain that sort of thing. It, it just did. That people translated what was going on into grievance and translated their grievance into action, you know, in one instance and didn't in the other instance. So what we see is, is very, very strange. Let me just say something about the Arab Spring and that, that terminology, because it's very important. It's not just sort of, you know, a historian getting on his high horse. First of all, spring sort of like denotes you know, you know, springtime, uh, you know, um, joy and happiness. And, stuff. and these, these things didn't end out well. So, I mean, there's that aspect. But more importantly, spring is a season. These things did not take place in a season, okay? People say, okay, the first one broke out in December of 2010. The last one broke out in March of 2011. That's a season. No, it's not. Because the first one really broke out in 1980 with the Berber Spring in Algeria. And then you had a whole series of rebellions, two color revolutions, for example, taking place in Kuwait that nobody loved in um, uh, Egypt uh, that were, you know, changed government policy. Um, you had um, a, you know, a various other things taking place in Morocco, for example, um, and in um, an another rebellion, uh, Black October in Algeria in 1980. You had the Damascus Spring in 2000. Human rights has been an issue in the Middle East, the way we define it now, individual human rights, has been an issue in the Middle East since the 1970s. As a matter of fact, the Tunisian League for Human Rights was founded two years before uh, Amnesty International. You know, so when people are all surprised about these things happening and, you know, everybody in the Middle East, they, they're only thinking about Islam and Islamic movements and things like that as well. People in the Middle East have been rebelling, rebelling in a variety of ways, you know, for years now. There are Islamic movements, there are a variety of Islamic movements, those that work within the system, like the Muslim Brotherhood, those that work outside the system, like Al-Qaeda, for example. Uh, so there's all sorts of Islamic movements, there's labor movements. You know, some of the biggest, most important participants in the Egyptian, Tunisian, and Yemeni um, uh, uprisings were labor unions. Um, and they, they, when they called their members out, their members went out, you know. Uh, there's human rights stuff um, that's, that's uh, uh, people agitating for human rights. A lot of the Iranian revolution was that basis, was human rights and anti-imperialism, you know, mixed up together. And it was only later that the mullahs got in charge of it. So basically, you know, we have a whole variety of things taking place, including this, uh, the fight for human rights that was so on the table during the Arab uprisings. I appreciate that distinction. Um, I sometimes like to call the time we're living in as the age of certainty. And I mean that in sarcasm, because I feel like uh, most people feel very certain about things. But the, the truth is that 
everything is a spectrum and you know we can we can categorize areas or regions as certain ways but really that's more black or white thinking and then the reality is is everything is is across the board quite a spectrum of of really anything um i'm going to go back to israel and palestine but while we're here um i had a question for you and it is has the arab spring run dry um and if so is tunisia an outlier um it's an interesting question uh the, this particular wave of the uprisings is over and tunisia is so far an outlier tunisia also is tenuous uh but uh, i certainly wish them the best of luck with with their experiment and uh but it's still ongoing um they've got problems particularly uh jihadis in um uh tunisia uh economic problems that will not be resolved uh with uh, a neoliberal pro uh, program so they've got real problems uh, but they're trying to deal with them. Um, the, this particular wave uh, is, however, pretty much shot. You know, it's gone. Now, I say that at the same time that we see um, uh, offshoots of, the, uh, of uprisings taking place in various other places, in the Sudan, Algeria, and Lebanon. Now, those particular ones uh, pretty much have been wiped out by COVID. People are not massing on the streets, for example, in uh, Lebanon, because uh, people are afraid of COVID. You know, so it's not that people are, are, are fundamentally, you know, happy with the regime or whatever. Um, there's a lot more talk, by the way, among people I know there of emigration uh, than there has been in the past. But it's that, you know, people don't want to mass on the streets like they did uh, during those heady days of uh, the big Lebanese demonstrations. So that, that's something that has been affecting the stability of the region. Uh, actually, COVID has made the region more stable uh, than uh, it had been be beforehand. What an interesting emerging thing from this chaotic moment. Uh, that's interesting. Um, We're talking, by the way, stability and not safety, I mean, or human security, where, you know, human security is still wretched. And when I say human security, I mean, those things that enable life and those things that enable good life. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, you can go through the statistics in the Middle East. You know, the Middle East is the worst region in the world to be a woman, you know. Yemen is the worst country in the world to be a woman. Um, you know, particularly now. The Middle East is suffering from food shortages, it's suffering from economic stagnation, it's suffering from a whole lot of things, you know, that are, there's no easy fixes for these problems. It's the second least globalized part of the world economy, for the, uh, the first one being Sub-Saharan Africa. And the only thing it exports is oil and unemployed, un un unemployed young men, uh, and, you know, expo uh, you know, exporting them to Europe, mainly in boats that half the time sink. So, you know, it, it's really in a wretched economic state, even before COVID. And now with COVID, things are just doubling over themselves. Yeah, I, uh, I have this thought that I stole from somebody else as far as COVID. Um, COVID didn't change much of what was happening before. It just accelerated the trends. Um, yeah. And that's interesting. Um, you, you really shifted. I'm gonna, this is going to take months to unpack, but you really shifted my perspective by telling me how... Uh, they import most of their food in the region. 
because uh, now that it's it's giving a whole different perspective to the how how much of a flash in the pan the Arab Spring was, because if you're destabilizing entire governmental regime um, and and you're making things chaotic, you know, for likely good reasons, as you're you're pointing out, if you don't have a stable economic means um, from you know, this is something I've I, I'm your, your episode's going to come out right at, after an arc that I'm doing on the Anthropocene. Um, and the Anthropocene is the age of humans in which we live. Um, and something that I'm trying to highlight in that, in that you know, uh, arc is how much we take for granted agriculture. And this is a great example of it. Because if the, the basic, you know, we're, we don't have enough food for everybody, you know, if all of a sudden we're trying to tear down and rebuild a new government, um, if we don't have something as simple as, as bread on the table, it's, it's going to make everything a lot harder or, or, or even just stop us in our tracks. Um, well, one of the things that's interesting about the Middle East is every state in the region subsidizes bread. Huh. Um, you know, every government subsidizes bread. So fundamentally, when you have a situation in which the governments are hurting economically, what they try to do, and, and they go to the IMF, and they say, look, you know, we need a loan in order to tide us over. And the IMF says to them, fine, you could have some money, but here are the conditions. They call them conditionalities, okay? Stop subsidizing bread. Stop subsidizing oil, you know, and petroleum products. Stop, you know, you know, open up your markets, do this, that, and the other thing as well, okay? So the population, you know, this is why you get IMF riots, and it, it destabilizes the governments. The IMF riots are usually caused when the government, you know, agrees to conditionalities, particularly subsidies that people absolutely depend upon, you know, to eat. Um, so uh, the governments are either going to get broke by doing the subsidies, or they're going to get uh, have to put down rebellions that are caused by the ending of, of, of these subsidies. And people don't look at this, but this, you know, throughout the region, this has happened. It's happening recently, and it's happened in Palestine, for example. It happened in Jordan recently. It happens in Lebanon, you know. Uh, this ending of the subsidies is something that, you know, people take to heart. It's one of those things that, um, you know, there's a lot of talk, talk about Donald Trump, whether he's going to really step down and so on and so forth, okay? The, the, you know, if he doesn't, there's going to be rioting in the streets. And the reason for that is because there is certain expectations that you have from your government, and one of which is a peaceful transfer of power in the case of the Americans. In the case of Arabs, it tends to be the governments guarantee us the right, uh, guarantee us uh, bread at a certain price. Uh, and that is our human right. Wow, what a uh, sobering thought, honestly. Um, it's hard for me not to go back to the riots in ancient Rome with, with the bread dole, because mm -hmm. that was, that was a, a, especially in the early and late empire, that was a continuing pressure. And you know, the interesting thing about that is Egypt was actually the bread, pas bread basket of the Roman Empire. So when Caesar, you know, and, and his conquest, uh, and really Octavian, uh, uh, Caesar Augustus um, kind of cemented uh, Egypt as a province of Rome and all, and all of the bread making that kind of came from that. It essentially just subsidized and, and put a lock on the bread dole. And that was a, a continual thing that they had to be as a government and eventually really bankrupt them several times was to make sure that they didn't have rioting in the streets because they had to keep the bread flowing. Um, so that's, that's, I, I hadn't, I hadn't seen that kind of, how much of an issue that is. And IMF riots, I think that's another thing that I want to just like highlight again for anyone that is listening um, because the IMF, 
okay, so the IMF and our agricultural subsidies, I, I think, are two things that most Americans don't keep in the for, for, forefront of their mind. But when it comes to U.S. American, you know, foreign policy, the, you know, backing the IMF and the loans in which they give, and then having agricultural subsidies here have ripple effects across, you know, company or countries being able to maintain their own balanced budgets because of, you know, interest to IMF loans, and then also having to compete with American prices on the market. Um, with, with especially, as I put it, a hungry China um, that's becoming all the more tenuous. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's actually very interesting. The, you know, um, neoliberal economic po policies that the IMF pushes and the United States pushes as well, um, they've been a great source of instability uh, throughout the world. And you could look at neoliberalism as these, uh, one of the uh, contexts for the Arab uprisings but also for, for example, this rise of strongmen in various parts of the world, in, in Turkey, for example, or in Hungary. Also for Brexit, and also for the election of Donald Trump, in addition to Occupy Wall Street and all the Occupy movements, you know. Uh, so, you know, fundamentally, it is the uh, rebellion against these sort of policies that lies at the root of so many of these movements. Um, and, you know, th this is, going back to this idea of consciousness and, 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 and uh, contingency, um, you know, basically people look at these things, uh, look at, at, at these policies, it's hurting them. How many Americans voted for Trump because they hated the elites, for example? And when they say about elites, they're talking about these, these crony capitalists in the, in the United States, the people who are able to scam the system, pay $750 worth of, 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 of federal taxes, uh, for example. Um, you know, so uh, they fall for this phony populism. Um, or, you know, in the, the case of, uh, of Britain, they look at the uh, European Union, and they say, this is the source of our problems, you know, uh, when actually the source of the problems actually lies elsewhere. Um, it, it, it happens that people interpret this stuff in their own way. Uh, and the movements happen in the same way, in, you know, uh, uh, by place by place in, in a different way. But that doesn't mean one particular movement is going to win or not win. If you have a rejection of neoliberal economic policies, you can come up with Donald Trump, but you could also come up with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, you know, and you could also come up with Occupy Wall Street, you know. So there's all sorts of ways that, you know, your conscious, people's consciousness leads them in specific directions. Those directions include, for example, everything from you know a you know, right-wing populism to, I guess, what you can call left-wing populism. Um, but you know the idea being that they both emerge in the exact same environment, the exact same milieu. Yeah, I love that the 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 idea of it emerging. I think is an important one, and I uh, I really like how you put translate. How they trans how how the individual consciousness translates this because, I mean, the average person perhaps maybe doesn't maybe doesn't know quite what neoliberal policies are and kind of how it is. Um, I use this analogy a lot. I love this analogy, and I'm going to swear, but I'm going to swear different than the person who first said it. Uh, David Foster Wallace is this amazing writer, um, and he has this speech called "This Is Water." I've cited it in the podcast before, um, and in there, there's a story, and the story goes like this. Um, there's two young fish swimming along when an older fish passes them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim along a little bit further 
and one goes at the other and says, the fuck is water? <laughs> and, and the point of it is, you know, the obvious nature of the world is, is often the thing we take most for granted and have the hardest time seeing. And I think neoliberalism is one that has become, it, it, it is the bipartisan agenda in a lot of ways, the established bipartisan agenda. Like obviously we have a new person and a new kind of sect in Bernie Sanders and kind of the movement he has started. And, you know, he didn't necessarily didn't start it, but emerged out of that. And there's definitely some more friction to that type of main state narrative. But I think it is something that is very obvious. It's around us. It is essentially our, the epoch that we live in is the epoch of neoliberalism and in in, in dealing with its emergent effects to continue in the kind of concept of emerging. Um, Let me just, um, you know, ahead, we've been yeah. using the term a lot uh, and everybody's on the same page when we talk about neoliberalism. We're talking about free market economics. We're talking about the idea that water and government, you know, or it's like, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, economics and politics are like oil and water that they shouldn't be mixed at all. So we're talking about Reagan, we're talking about, uh, you know, the idea of uh, the problem, you know, the problem is government. It's not the government is doing too little, but the government is doing too much. That the government shouldn't intervene into the economy, that the free market should, should run itself. Now, basically, think of this as an ideology like any other ideology. Economists like to think of themselves as um, you know, scientists, or at least social scientists, you know, and that they're dealing with, they're trying to find the laws of economics and the rules of economics and secret is there are no rules and there are no laws because fundamentally it comes down to a choice. What do you want your end product to be? Do you want your end product to be, for example, um, the uh, uh, full employment? Uh, then you have Keynesian economics. Do you want your end product to be that the government just lets you alone and you, know, you think that a rising tide carries all ships? That's nonsense, of course, but that's what they claim. Um, then, then you want a very, very different. So it's, it's based upon outcomes. You know? And science is not based upon outcomes. Science is based upon you know, laws that are inflexible. So you know, we're in this era now. You know, I don't know how much longer we're going to be in it because fundamentally there are too many people who are objecting to it. Um, you can always sell the American people, though, a pig and a poke by telling them, look, it's all about freedom. You know, and that's how we've come to accept this. I mean, basically, think about how, for example, the fight over face masks came about. It's all about freedom, individual freedom. No, it's about being a moron. Yeah. Um... Which is why I think that story or that analogy of fish and water is so important. Yeah. And I think it's also so important in the way that you just described consciousness and the transformation of ideas and the emerging qualities that happen because the individuals in Syria were not, I mean, part of their, uh, I'm going to use the word rage just because it's like a, the emotional outpouring that they had. Um, had to do with maybe having to relocate to a different area, maybe had to do with economic instability, maybe had to do with, you know, uh, like you said, they were the water shortages, which means bread prices were higher and perhaps the pressures on the subsidies for that and all of that. It had to do with all of these things that they translated this, you know, the fact, the numerous factors in the, you know, in their world around them into this uprising. Um, right. And, you know, it, it is in those obvious things that we take for granted and kind of the, the current that we're pushed into swimming in, that we tend to lose sight of that, which I think is why I, I, I'm going to be mulling over those those dynamics as well as the 
the importing of on the Middle East for quite a few months, I think. Well, you got to remember, remember how the Syrian thing began, because I mean, it began also through a bunch of translations. Um, there were some demonstrations in Damascus, but they were small and they were easily pushed aside by the security forces. But then in the small town of Dara, in, in the very southern part of Syria, I've, I've been there, it's, you know, it's a dusty small town, a small city, let's put it that way. Um, the police caught a bunch, or security forces caught a bunch of, school, of, of children uh, writing down with the government the slogan of the Egyptian um, rebellion. Um, on a building, you know, and they took them in. And of course, Syria being Syria and Syrian security forces being Syrian security forces, they, they tortured them and they didn't tell their parents. And the parents were hysterical, of course. So the parents went out on the streets uh, to demand the, the release of their children and the security forces opened fire. Okay. And the next day, tens of thousands of Syrians went out on the streets, you know. So what they did was they took this one incident uh, and they translated it into a demand for the removal of an entire government. Uh, and then things spun out from there. Uh, it was militarized further. It was sectarianized further. Um, it became a proxy war. Uh, all these things make Syria, the Syrian rebellion, what the Syrian rebellion turned out to be. Yeah, I, um, I like analogies because I, I think that, uh, I fundamentally think that Homo sapiens are narrative uh, beings. I think that our evolution is kind of, and uh, through the construct of language has made it an easy thing. We, we think in narrative. And I think once again, like fish and water, it's hard for us to escape it, even if we may not realize it. Um, and, and something I think about a lot, um, I'm going to use an analogy, a sports analogy, um, is, you know, the, it's the last shot of the game where you're down by one, you kick, kick the ball out to the corner, someone takes a shot, it, it rims out and you lose. And everyone's upset. Why didn't you make that shot? Why didn't you make that shot? And they're, they're analyzing that last play. And hopefully a seasoned coach comes in and says, no, we didn't lose it there. We lost it the whole game because we couldn't guard that guy. Or we lost it, you know, earlier because we didn't have a game plan. Or, we, you know, you we were making our cuts or you kept looking the wrong way. You kept forgetting this. You kept forgetting that. It's multiple events that lead up to one single thing you can point to as, as what the cause of it potentially is. But there really is no cause. It's a bunch of different factors. Um, and I think that in this in instance, is just another example of that. Um, and the, as you know far better than I, the Middle East is chock full of those. And, and perhaps that is why it's, well, I mean, in part, perhaps it's why that area is, is so tumultuous is because there's so many pressures and factors that are leading there. And then also to go back to the ecological collapse that we kind of cited earlier, it's an oil rich area and, and the entire world economy is, is run on it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what, certainly what, one of the reasons why, for example, the United States has been so involved in the Middle East. Um, it's, it's, you know, oil is a major factor. I mean, um, not just for the United States, the United States knew at the end of World War II that it needed Middle East oil, not for itself. As a matter of fact, there was prohibitions against importing more than a certain amount of Middle Eastern oil into the United States. The oil companies convinced the Republicans of doing that. Um, the um, uh, Americans wanted to make sure there was oil for uh, European and Japanese reconstruction. You know? And so that became a ma major strategic goal for the United States. Uh, and um, you know, became part of American policy ever since. 
Yeah, I'm currently searching for an expert on the, the United States plan post-World War II. So if you have anybody that you can connect me with, that'd be great. Because I think that something else that we take, our, our entire economy and the boom that we've had as an American kind of dominance in the world and the last remaining hegemony and all of that is really riding these really brilliant and subtle decisions that were made at the end of World War II, of which one of them you just highlighted. Um, like I think there's, I think it's Eisenhower, the famous picture where he's sitting with the uh, uh, the leadership of Saudi Arabia and they're making this, this accord of kind of actually Roosevelt. Rose, okay. Roosevelt mm -hmm. and, and, and kind of they're making the agreement uh, as far as, you know, Saudi oil kind of going through the region. And that is, I mean, that was such a brilliant play because there's, you know, I mean, Germany, there's a lot of reasons that they, they lost the war Russia, obviously, but their resource poor, you know, especially in oil and all that definitely kind of, was a big factor in all of that. So for the Americans to come in and say, we're going to try to stabilize the world through oil, um, it, it, it was a really interesting thing at a time when everyone else was expecting them to take such a different stance. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. There, yeah. Um, so I want to go back. I want to go back to uh, uh, Israel and Palestine real quick. And you mentioned uh, the Oslo Accords. Um, in the in the earlier part of it and how important those were. Could you help us understand what the Oslo Accords are um, and why they matter? Yeah, uh, the Oslo Accords are the, until the Trump administration, um, between 1993 and the Trump administration, were the, um, uh, provided the fundamental framework for negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians. The first accord, there's two Oslo Accords, one of which is mainly, you know, the details of how to work this stuff out. The first one, though, is probably the most important because it contains what's called a Declaration of Principles, which is, for the first time, the Israelis uh, recognized a Palestinian nation, and the Palestinians recognized uh, uh, Israel as a nation of state. Now, the thing, of course, is, is that why do I add that state thing on? Because the end result of Oslo was never sort of written into Oslo. Uh, we don't know if the framers, for example, wanted to have a Palestinian state at the end or wanted to have some sort of relationship between uh, Palestine and Jordan uh, as the ultimate goal, which is what uh, Rabin wanted. Um, so, but the idea was that for the first time in 50 years, the uh, conflict returned back to the principles, what it's all about. The conflict, you know, a lot is being made of normalization between Bahrain and UAE and stuff like that. And, you know, what this means for the resolution of the conflict. It means nothing for the resolution of the conflict. The conflict isn't between, or never was between Israel and Bahrain or Israel and the UAE. It's always been about Israel and the Palestinians. And, you know, you could try to ignore it. You could try to disengage from it. You could try to crush the Palestinians as, as you know, has been, you know, as people have talked about. But what you can't do is ignore it, you know, and you have to go back there sometime. So there hasn't been negotiations. I believe the last one was uh, 2014. Uh, there haven't been real serious negotiations uh, between Israelis and Palestinians. The Trump plan, plan now throws a, uh, a roadblock into making any more advances because fundamentally the, what it does is it upsets the whole uh, Oslo apple cart. Oslo was built upon the idea of, okay, we got these problems from 1948 and 1967. How do we, the principles, Israelis and Palestinians, go about resolving them? 
And the United States could you know, nudge one in a certain direction or nudge the other or try to in a certain direction. But never under Oslo was there this idea that we're going to put forward an entire plan. And the plan is going to consist of Israel is going to take this, you're going to take that, and so on and so forth. Okay? This is exactly what Trump you know, did. Uh, there is little to be left to be negotiated. Jerusalem is, you know, is Israeli. You know, it's united and Israeli. So you can't negotiate that. There will be no right of return. There, there are no such things as uh, the, the only refugees are the people who you know, fled in 1948. Everybody else is being defined out of that category. Um, that uh, Palestine, uh, there will be a Palestinian state, uh, which will not include the Jordan Valley or, or most of the Jordan Valley, and will not include uh, areas in which there are settlements. Um, you know, they'll have the rest of it. And, you know, basically, it'll be disarmed. It'll, they won't have control over their water resources. They won't have control over their electrical grid. They won't have any ports uh, and that sort of thing. The state will be fragmented into a variety of, of, of cantons, uh, separated by Israeli territory, separated by uh, uh, roads uh, that, you know, only people with Israeli license plates can drive on. Uh, it'll be separated by, you know, various other things as well. Uh, so it's, it's, it's basically creating this state, a state minus is what it's usually called, you know, won't be able to defend itself, won't have control of airspace, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So the Palestinians are being asked to accept this. They're not being asked to, you know, here's a proposal, let's negotiate it. They're being asked to accept it. Of course, the Israelis have accepted it. And of course, the Palestinians have rejected it. There's no chance in hell that the Palestinians will go back at the present time. So uh, I just finished a new edition of my Israel-Palestine book. Um, it's going to be printed in, in the spring. And uh, in the last paragraph, I talk about Oslo being dead. Uh, now, uh, I don't know what Biden is going to do. I have a feeling I know what he's going to do, which is ignore the region, uh, which is exactly what Obama wanted to do as well, uh, but kept on being sucked back into it. Um, but frankly, there is no good that can come out of spending too much time on this region. The only thing that, you know, you're going to get is grief. I, uh, you validated my thoughts of what potential Biden administration may do. Um, particularly, I've wondered what, it, what he would do with uh, moving the embassy to Jerusalem. And my thought was he may just end up doing nothing because it's not with the political capital. Um, that's really interesting. Um, so, so now we have we had the Oslo Accords and they're now dead, and now we have um, God. It's so Trumpy in the way that it's called, by the way. Um, so, so you have this new framework, and I want to ask, how did Trump abandon this framework in fa in favor of playing to an? Uh, let me rephrase this. Um, Trump's abandoned this Oslo Accord framework in favor of playing to an evangelical base that, in your words, is taking a page out of Israel Victory Project. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, the Israel Victory Project is a, a, um, a, the idea, the brainstorm of a group called Middle East Forum, which is an ultra-right-wing group. And what they decided to do was to put pressure on Congress in particular and to throw out this new idea. And the idea is this. Screw the Palestinians, it's over. We're walking away, you know? You don't have a state, that's fine, you know, we don't really care, you know? We're gonna stop taking care of refugees, we're gonna start imposing more severe penalties on Palestinians who, if they can, on Palestinians who uh, uh, do uh, bad things in Israel, for example, 
Um, but you know, the most important thing is that um, uh, we will give free license to um, uh, Israel to either destroy the Palestinian national movement or to um, just you know, demoralize it. It's not going to get anything, period. The game is over. And the Trump plan is sort of very, very similar. I mean, I can't identify anything in the Trump plan that's practicable that the Palestinians are going to get out of it. They're not going to get, for example, uh, even a, let's look at the book. You know, Bill Clinton earned this title Slick Willie because of his ability to split the difference and stuff. So he, he made a suggestion to the Israelis and Palestinians. Here's a framework for you, you know. Um, and the framework is this, okay. Um, nobody, we're not going to divide um, uh, Jerusalem between uh, Israelis and Palestinians. Israelis and Palestinians are going to share Jerusalem, okay? The Palestinian state will be disarmed, but will have control over its airspace, you know, and on and on and on and on. Um, you know, there'll be land swaps. Uh, every, every inch of territory Israel takes in, in the West Bank, there'll be compensation of good land for a Palestinian state, et cetera, et cetera, okay? So this idea is split the difference. You know, and the Palestinians could walk away with something and the Israelis can walk away with something. And, and nobody's going to get what they want, but that's what compromise is all about. Look at the uh, Trump deal. You know, the Trump deal, the Palestinians get nothing. They get a, the best they get is a four year freeze on settlement construction by the Israelis. And then after the four years, the Israelis are going to be capable of just annexing the territory. When I say annex, I mean applying Israeli law. Uh, to, you know, uh, to the land, you know, in other words. So any Palestinians on the land are going to be tried under Israeli law. Yeah. I mean, that sort of thing. So um, the whole thing is, some of it is ludicrous. For example, there is this industrial zone that is going to be built in um, uh, uh, Israel um, uh, that, Palestinian, that will be a Palestinian industrial zone. It's going to be on the border of Israel. And um, it'll be connected to Palestine, and all of Palestine will be connected together through um, high-speed technological whatevers, you know, buried tunnels and high-speed rail and, and that sort of stuff as well. Now, here's a guy, remember when Infrastructure Week was before it became a joke, you know? Here's a guy who couldn't get that stuff off the ground in the United States, suggesting it that, you know, uh, we're going to do this for the Palestinians. We're also going to give $50 billion to the area. Um, this money, half of it, only half of it's going to go to the Palestinians, by the way. The rest of it's going to the surrounding areas. And, you know, we can be so generous with it because we're not going to pay for it. The Saudis and the Gulf states are going to pay for it, not us, you know? which would have been nice if you asked the Saudis in the Gulf states beforehand, or even if they consented to it. So the plan is not going to work. It's, you know, just sort of like a total fantasy. But what it does, it, it does two things. Number one, it derails Oslo, you know. And number two, it's, it's a, a new starting point for the Israelis should negotiations ever take place again. Why should the Israelis ever, you know, sort of agree to not annexing this territory when they when were given the right to annex this territory after four years, you know? So basically all they have to do is wait it out. That's interesting. I also wonder how much they're actually going to honor those, that four years, because, you know, continued Israeli settlements, I mean, they, it's not by the government, but it's definitely by their citizens is, is kind of a mainstay of, of the region. 
Well, the Israelis like to differentiate between what they call legal and illegal settlements, okay? Uh, legal settlements are, I mean, basically, according to international law, no, no matter what my, Mike Pompeo might say, according to international law, they're all illegal, you know? Uh, they're a violation of um, the Fourth Geneva Convention, you know? And it's actually very interesting what the violation is. It's you're not allowed to move your population into areas that are being occupied. And of course, the Israelis incentivize the settlements by giving tax breaks and education breaks and things like that for people to move out to the settlements. So, you know, basically that's moving their population into an occupied territory. Um, so that's, I forgot how we got here, but, you know, it's, it's uh, something that, you know, is, is there's, there's not going to be, uh, the Israelis are not going to back, go back to ground zero before the Trump plan. No, yeah, that, that makes total sense. Um, and, and check my understanding, but I believe that it only takes one rocket attack into some of these illegal set of settlements for there to be a casus belli from the state of Israel to, to protect them as well. Right. Oh, of the illegal, the illegal uh, uh, now I remember, I've got my train of thought back. Um, illegal and legal uh, settlements. Um, as I said, illegal settlements are those that are not recognized by the government. There might be a trailer or something like that that somebody stakes out or a group stakes out. Uh, and what have you. And then the political negotiations begin to take place. And those negotiations are, well, if you want the support from this particular settler group, then, you know, political support for this particular settler group, then you're going to have to legalize this settlement. And this, this is something that has been going on. Also settlement expansion, you know, uh, there's supposed to be a settlement freeze and a freeze on expansion. The idea of, you know, the Israelis say, um, well, we have to expand, you know, because a lot of young people, young families move out there and they need to build additions to their buildings and so on and to their homes and that sort of stuff. And my attitude is, how many years are these negotiations going to drag on? You know, if people are operating in good faith, negotiations should be finished in a couple months, you know. I'm sorry, but the baby can sleep in the crib in the master bedroom until then, you know. So, you know, I find the Israeli argument completely bogus. Yeah, I think you make a pretty strong case for that, too. Um, and, and to go back to your, your linkage um, theory before, the UAE and was it UAE and Saudi Arabia that signed on to this new agreement? No, uh, uh, the normalization. The new, the Trump normalization, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, basically UAE, Bahrain, Sudan. Uh, and uh, the fundamental problem, the way they read it, the way Bahrain, UAE, Saudi Arabia, all the Gulf states read it, is that the fundamental problem in the region is uh, Iran versus the, their, their alliance. Okay. Um, that, um, you know, and it, it basically people look at it as a Sunni Shi thing that's nonsense. Saudi Arabia and Iran were all buddy buddy until 1979. And, the difference now is that uh, Saudi Arabia is a status quo, you know, a state. It wants to keep things the way they are because they're going pretty well for Saudi Arabia. And Iran is a, um, you know, anti-status quo, a revolutionary power, uh, wants to sort of like find trouble spots, uh, uh, cleavages, that it could just sort of like separate the two sides even more. Um, so it's intervened in various places, uh, you know, in the region, the same way that Saudi Arabia has intervened in various places in, in, in the region as well, uh, in order to help their allies and to expand their, their, their uh, you know, strategic depth, you know, is what, what Iran is after. So 
Um, the fundamental problem in the region is this conflict, and that's why Bahrain and um, UAE have uh, signed on to this deal. deal. Uh, UAE is probably going to get F-35 jets, which are, uh, I don't know very much about aviation, but they say they're state-of-the-art jets, uh, the best that the American arsenal has. Um, the, um, uh, both of them are going to be able to, if, if relations are normalized fully, um, are going to uh, be able to get strategic depth from Israel, are going to be able to get technological, a technological edge from Israel in this, their campaign against Iran. And they're also going to get access to the American government, you know, uh, that the Israelis are going to pretty much guarantee. Uh, so, and this has already been seen in the payoff for the F-35s. The United States has also put its finger on the scale for the Sudan as well, uh, which, by the way, is the only one of the three states that were, was ever at war with Israel. Uh, Sudan sent a contingent into the 1967 war. Um, but Bahrain and the UAE were founded in 1971, long after both the 1948 and 67 wars. So, you know, there was that. So uh, Sudan is going to get, it's going to be taken off the terrorist, uh, state-sponsored terrorism list, and it's going to get uh, huge bucks. You know, uh, I think they're talking about $3 billion or something like that. Um, you know, I can hear my, my inner Trump speaking saying, you know, why are we paying out all this money to these other foreign governments, you know, when money should be stay in the United States and they should pay their own way and their problems are not our problems and we're going to make America great again by bringing everybody, you know, thank God we don't, won't have that to listen to much longer. Yes, we can hope. Uh, that's, wow, what an, I had no idea of the complexities of the Bahrain and that, that is, man, I, I, I I would love in some other time to go really deep with Saudi Arabia with you because that's the actually that's the actor in the area that I am most concerned about. But the reason I wanted to talk about Israel and Palestine so much in this talk was because it fell out of the news so much, and I was I was I was really con there's a I mean um, I think another uh, tenor of our time or tone of our time is the fact that there is so much information that there's just too much to sift through. Um, and everyone kind of gets lost in these these emotional uh, algorithms, if you will. Um, and and I, I I knew there was a lot in that agreement that I wasn't understanding and being able to see through the the crystal ball, if you will, of of what agreements are on page and what they actually end up being, kind of similar to our, our nation and imagination idea. Um, but I had no idea about Bahrain and the normalization there. I wonder how much they see the writing on the wall that perhaps America is going to not have as much of an active role in it and they're kind of trying to uh take a point to to see what's you know up ahead i think that's that's very true i think that basically there's been a whole bunch of things one of which was uh, you know the reason why saudi arabia in particular stepped forward uh there was the uprisings that threatened a whole bunch of saudi allies there's a downturn in oil prices but there was the obama policy towards the middle east which is basically what Obama wanted to do is he wanted to restore something called offshore balancing. Um, throughout the Cold War, the United States intervened into the Middle East militarily very rarely, only twice, if I can remember correctly, and both times were was in Lebanon. Um, but uh, what we did was we depended upon our associates in the region to do the police work themselves. And we would be the ultimate guarantor of their survival. So Israel was sort of the American pillar in the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, uh, pretty much against Syria. Uh, in the uh, Persian Gulf, it was Saudi Arabia and Iran 
pretty much against uh, Iraq, you know, and that was what the United States worked on. You know, that's how, that's was the alliance system. During the Vietnam War, there was something called Vietnam, Vietnamization. Uh, the idea being that, you know, American troops would come home, but first we will train the Vietnamese to do what American troops were doing, and then, then we'll, you know, withdraw from Vietnam. It didn't happen that way, of course. Um, but uh, this was the same sort of idea that uh, Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern uh, uh, countries will pretty much take care of their own defense, will work for American interests in the region, uh, and, um, you know, will hold their coats. Uh, the reason why, by the way, they'll work for American interests is because their interests were our interests. We were a status quo power during the Cold War, so and they're status quo powers. They don't want to see changes, so they're willing to you know do what we ask. Now, after the end, uh, you know, what Obama after the end of the Cold War, the United States began to slowly get more and more directly involved militarily, starting with the Iran with the uh, Iraq War, the uh, the uh, first Gulf War. Um, in which the United States put together this coalition. And then there was the dual containment strategy, which I don't even want to get into. Uh, and, the United States, and then finally, you know, the global war on terror and uh, the invasion of Iraq. That was all American military adventures. We had never done that before, you know. And then what Obama wanted to do was to stop that. You know, no more silly American adventures anymore. What we have to do now is we got to pivot to Asia, which is where the future is going to be. And we also have to get out of these quagmires in the Middle East, not just those quagmires, but the Israel-Palestine conflict and so on and so forth. So Obama began to put pressure on Israel to stop settlement construction so they can get negotiations going again. And of course, uh, the uh, Netanyahu government uh, you know, refused. Um, and uh, the Saudis, uh, and what they wanted to do was, what Obama wanted to do was to have the Saudis take more care for their own defense against Iran. Uh, and also to sign this um, uh, nuclear deal with Iran to bring Iran into the, the table. There's a, an, an interesting Saudi um, proverb, which is, it's better to have a camel in your tent pissing out than a camel outside your tent pissing in. And the idea of the nuclear deal was to have Iran in the tent so it would piss, piss out. So it wouldn't be a spoiler all the time in, in the region. Well, the Saudi, that freaked the Saudis out also. So there was the Obama policy about uh, offshore balancing. There was policy for bringing Iran into international councils. So that's when they became really proactive, you know, in the region, uh, which is you know what you have now. The difference with the Trump strategy was that Trump he bases his foreign policy on a number, or he based his foreign policy on a number of things. One of which was you know just uh, his love of strongmen. Uh, Erdogan, for example, of Turkey in the Middle East. Uh, a second thing was um, uh, just whim. Uh, we withdrew forces from Syria because he got into an argument over the telephone uh, with Erdogan. Um, in addition to that, this political gain, which you see, you know, with the um, uh, evangelical vote, uh, more than the Jewish vote, by the way. He doesn't care about the Jewish vote. He cares about the evangelical vote because they're more numerous reason for the Trump foreign policy was to reverse anything that Obama did. And as a result of that, he became a stooge for the, Saudi, for the Saudis and the Israelis, you know, because fundamentally there was a really cold relationship between the United States and Israel and the United States and Saudi Arabia under Obama. And so, you know, you could see the difference when, you know, when Biden takes his first trip, it's going to be either the Canada or Mexico. That's traditional. When Trump took his first trip, it was to Riyadh and Jerusalem, you know. So 
anything Obama did, he wanted to be the Obama, as I put it in my book. I was going to use that word if you didn't if you didn't uh, plug it. I thought that was great. Um, yeah, I uh, well, the funny thing with Trump and and check me if I'm not if I'm getting some of the details wrong is that, well, his first trip was to Saudi Arabia, like you had mentioned, and there's like this really eerie picture of him touching this like glowing orb uh, with, with the shower over there with, or uh, with the leaders over there. And I thought that was uh, quite weird, but uh, was the arms deal that he was uh, praising when MBS was you know, in the uh, office with him uh, was actually one that was negotiated by Obama, if, I, if I'm not incorrect, right? You're, you're right. But of course, Trump couldn't possibly give credit to Obama on anything, you know, so uh, and this is really the mainstay of his policy. The British ambassador to the U.S. called this diplomatic vandalism, you know, just basically throwing a rock through Obama's window. Yeah, well, that, there's Trump in a nutshell. Um, the, the other thing uh, that's interesting to me about that is... Uh, I think that's something else that that a lot of people it, it's it's completely fallen out of our news cycle, which is the fact that the evangelical there's evangelical actors in America that that really are very pro-Israel for for various reasons, and um, a lot of Trump's stances from the you know embassy in Jerusalem and all that was to uh, appease that base, not to try to uh, do anything other than that. Um, and just as a callback again to that arms deal uh, that Obama, uh, I'm sorry, that Trump signed. Um, it, it is almost akin to the, okay, so like the air superiority that you mentioned in the Six Day War in 1967, that was very much due to American jet sales to Israel. Am I, am I correct in that? Uh, no, actually. Uh, hmm. I'm sorry. But, but you don't not, have to apologize if I'm, if I'm incorrect. No, no. Uh, actually, uh, it was, I believe the Israelis were, fly, were flying mirages in those days. Mm and not American aircraft. The first arms deal with the United States was for defensive weaponry, um, uh, Hawk missiles uh, that, that Israel wanted. Uh, that was under Kennedy. Uh, and you know, basically, we really didn't do very much in the Israel-Palestine thing until you know, uh, after the Six-Day War. The Six-Day War actually was very interesting because what it did was it, it created a bargaining situation. Where, you know, there was stuff that each side had that the other side wanted uh, for the first time. I mean, that hadn't been the case before that. But Israel had all these territories it conquered, uh, and all it wanted in exchange, or not all it wanted, it wanted in exchange guarantees of some sort of peace agreement. And uh, the Arabs wanted their territory back. You know, so that's where we get the formula land for peace, which has been at the root of every um, Arab-Israeli um, uh, peace treaty that we've ever had. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, I, uh, I studied the region a lot in college, and that was why I asked about the, the Six-Day War, because I wonder how much both the, you know, increase in territory that Israel was able to gain in that, plus the extreme show of force, um, you know, within that, you know, within that showing how much it kind of set the tone for, uh, carrying a big stick and not being afraid to use it? Well, the, the Israel, Israel's policy has always been based upon deterrence. You know, the idea of uh, we are going to deter our enemies. And that's one of the reasons why it's having such bad luck with Hezbollah and Hamas, because deterrence doesn't work for these guys. You know, they don't care, you know. Uh, and so basically the overreaction of recent years of Israelis, like, bombing the hell out of Lebanon for, you know, to get back at Hezbollah. Um, that is to try to restore deterrence, but it hasn't been restored. 
because it can't be restored against groups like Hezbollah and Hamas. Yeah, the, the many-headed hydra, right? Yeah. Um, I want to be conscious of your time, and if we can keep this, you know, keep this in there, I, I have one question which is uh, that I wanted to ask. Uh, we touched upon it in a second, which was uh, in the current climate of, of low oil prices, kind of you know, as a result of COVID, right? Um, how has the stability and the econ economy of the region changed during that, and has it at all? Uh, the region has been stagnant for a while. Uh, economically, as, as I said before, the only thing that it exports is oil and you know, unemployed youths. Now, uh, mo many of the Gulf states have tried to have gotten into diversifying, so that they're not totally oil dependent. So there's things like you know construction and real estate in some of the Gulf states. There's also some industry that's being built and that sort of thing. The Saudi Arabians have put together this thing called Vision 2030. And the idea of Vision 2030 is to make Saudi Arabia completely independent of oil by 2030. Um, by the way, uh, they've had 10 five-year development plans. In each of the 10 five-year development plans, that was also their objective as well. Saudi Arabia is not going to become an entrepreneurial dream. There are too many people who are dependent on the government for a variety of things, including employment. There are, you know, there is uh, too much at stake in terms of Saudi Aramco. Um, there is the idea that the Saudis win the loyalty of the population by buying the loyalty of their population, of the citizenry, not their population. Uh, because uh, so much of the work that's being done in Saudi Arabia is by uh, guest workers. They're going to have to double the number of women in the workforce uh, between, well, I guess it's, now it's 10 years. Let's see them, let's see them do that, you know. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's totally unworkable. It's one of these plans that came from an American uh, a, a firm. I forgot the name of it. It's the one that, uh, Kinsey. It's the one that Buttigieg worked for, Okay. You know, you could just say the Saudi Arabians went, went to Kinsey. Kinsey uh, basically said, okay, well, we're going to charge you a whole lot of money for this. And then they took one of these off-the-shelf things that they probably wrote for the government of Peru. You know, it's just as appropriate for the government of Peru as it is for Saudi Arabia. It's just this plain neoliberal, like, blueprint that is useless, you know. So the Saudis are, are moving in that direction. And now, of course, uh, you know, they wanted foreign investment, but after the murder of Khashoggi, they're not going to get it uh, from uh, American companies. So, you know, uh, it, it, it's ridiculous. They were forced to actually shake down their own economic and political elites in order to get money. Remember the, the, the prisoners in the hotel? Um, these were guys who were basically being blackmailed, you know, shaken down by the government. So the government, you know, low oil prices has had consequences for the Saudi Arabians, but one of those consequences is not going to be that Saudi Arabia becomes a free enterprise paradise. Yeah, the uh, I I found a it's so intriguing the uh, Saudi Aramco uh, going public saga and kind of everything that kind of happened with that, and then eventually landed in Riyadh as opposed to uh, New York City's uh, exchange. Um, it's interesting, um, especially the diversification at tech, which I think is something that not a lot of uh, it doesn't get enough attention, in my opinion. Um, but I want to be conscious of time. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for talking with me. Um, if there's anything else you want to add in the, in the closing seconds, I'm going to put your links to your books uh, in the show notes. And uh, perhaps we can have you on again to talk Saudi Arabia or the, uh, the new edition of uh, your Israel-Palestine conflict book. 
Um, There's also another one coming coming out. It's called um, the Contemporary Middle East in an Age of Upheaval. Uh, oh. Stanford University Press. It'll be out in the spring. It's an edited volume, and these guys are really good who wrote for the volume. So, um, you know, look for it. Yeah, I'm excited for that too. Um, well, thank. I'm going to pause the recording. We can just wrap in one second. But thank you again. I appreciate your time, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. And I'm going to definitely be diving into a lot more of your reading after we get off okay. the phone. Thank you.